By the Ohio Writing Project, OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project. Teachers teaching teachers. of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy, and welcome to our summer series, which we are presenting in partnership with the Ohio Council of Teachers of English Language Arts, also known as Octella. A few years ago, if you didn't hear the last episode, I created a podcast for Octella called Speaking and Listening, and I interviewed all kinds of amazing teachers, amazing teacher authors, and this is one of those interviews. And I'll tell you all about that interview in just a second. First, a poem. The Giver for Burtis by James Baldwin. If the hope of giving is to love the living, the giver risks madness in the act of giving. Some such lesson I seem to see in the faces that surrounded me. Needy and blind, unhopeful, unlifted. What gift would give them the gift to be gifted the giver is no less adrift than those who are clamoring for the gift. If they cannot claim it, if it is not there, if their empty fingers beat the empty air, and the giver goes down on his knees in prayer, knows that all of his giving has been for naught, and that nothing was ever what he thought, and turns in his guilty bed to stare at the starving multitude standing there, and rises from bed to curse at heaven, he must understand that to whom much is given, much will be taken, and justly so. I cannot tell how much I owe. Okay, so today you're going to hear an interview I did a few years ago with Lester Lamanac. He wrote a book called Writers Are Readers. He wrote a lot of books, but this is one of them, and he co-wrote it with Reba Wadsworth, and it's all about how reading and writing are taught separately in many instances when they could be taught maybe should be taught together. We also talked about um, one of his ideas that he's put out there that really changed my teaching, especially early in my career, and it's the concept of the best friend book. So here it is, my interview with Lester Lambert. I do a lot of work in the country, going in and out of classrooms and speaking at conferences, and kept noticing um, whenever I was working in classrooms, I would be invited to come in and either sit in the floor and model something with the work that I and Reba and I had done around Read Aloud, or to come in as a writer and some of the work I've done around writing and model um, some aspect of the writing workshop. But never was I asked to come in and sit down and look at the way the two blend together. And what I noticed over several years was that when I would meet with those teachers um, before going into their classrooms, and usually we'd be going into one teacher's classroom and then a half dozen or so of the grade level would be coming in to watch. And so I would meet with the whole team beforehand and just ask 
you know, what are the last five lessons you taught? What are the teaching points? Where are you headed with that? What is that building off of? Whether it was reading or writing. And then even if I was there for reading, I would say, so what is happening in writing? And if I was there for writing, I would say, so what is happening in reading? And they were never connected. And it just seemed odd to me because I know in my own writing life, whatever I've been reading or thinking about influences what I do. And I just began to explore that in mathematics, we sort of naturally teach inverse operations side by side and helping kids understand if three plus four is seven, then seven minus four is three. And if you put three yellow cubes and four orange cubes together, you have seven cubes all in one pile. And then taking that apart and putting it together helps you understand the concept better. And so I had done work um, back in the 80s with a socio-psycholinguistic model that sort of emerged into what we called whole language. And um, noting, you know, the integration of all the language modes and types and the work that we did around that, that we built naturally off of their oral language skills and built their conceptual frames and added vocabulary through reading and read aloud and conversation. And that that naturally spilled over into the writing we were doing. Um, and I was trying to figure out why people weren't more fluid with using what they understand about reading to inform what they teach in writing and using what they understand about writing to inform what they teach in reading. So um, I was having conversations with Reba and going, let's just sit down and brainstorm. So think of 10 things you see. Every classroom you go in, tell me 10 things you see, all of them teaching and reading. Let's just make a list. And so we sort of flipped that a little bit. Now, let's see if we can draw a parallel and do it through this lens. For a reader to infer, a writer has to do what to set that up? There has to be something the writer is doing that sets that up. Now, this is not new and groundbreaking work. People have talked about it, you know, forever. But when we started doing like a little review of the literature in terms of what's out there in professional books, I mean, there's articles about it and there's research about it, but we couldn't find, and even our editors and the folks at Heinemann were going, you know, we don't know anything that's just sitting down and making this explicit. If a reader does this, then a writer had to do that. So we created what we called flips. And, and the title of the book it, in the beginning was going to be called Flip It. And they thought I was being a little flippant. And, uh, and then that was also at the time when it was popular, the notion of flipping classrooms, you know, where you do some things online and some things. And there was some concern that that would be confused. But, you know, I was... I was wanting to do sort of a heads and tails kind of model that, um, and you would sort of have a coin. And then we came up with this writers are readers kind of notion. And uh, so everything we set up was we ended up looking at um, like text structures, comprehension strategies. Um, and then we included um, elements of literature because we just feel like that's something that people have sort of moved away from as they have moved more heavily into a focus on nonfiction um, and just sort of played with those notions and made our little chart, you know, of if you do this in reading, 
then the writer had to do something to set it up. And then could we flip that notion and make the writing more explicit so that the writing instruction could flow out of the reading insights? And then we got really excited and just sort of ran with it. I mean, I think that's... So in order to figure out this way of flipping reading instruction into writing instruction, you really you made this list and you flipped the learning that was happening on yourself, that was going on yourselves. Well, yeah, but because both of us are writers, I mean, Reba writes uh, professional literature, and I write both children's literature and professional literature, and and so it was kind of easy for us to say, you know, if you if you have to infer something as a reader, then the writer is not being explicit; they're being implicit. So, what does a writer do to make sure that you have to infer? And is that intentional? You know, like. Do, and it seems as if we consider that better writing. And I think it's because if I'm writing a book, let's say a piece of children's literature, a story um, that I'm going to make a picture book out of, there are places where I don't tell you something because I want you to be engaged. And if your brain has to add that piece of the puzzle, pulling from your background knowledge or vocabulary or schema, whichever, to fill in that little gap by something that I present in the text and you have to close that gap with what is present in your brain, then the only way you can be on board is if I tap into something that we have a shared understanding of. So you have to allude to something in the culture or allude to something um, from history or allude to something from literature that you assume the reader has read. That attempt will fail if you don't know your audience. And so, you know, like we sit in with a group of kids and we say things like, so you're writing about a soccer game. Now, are you writing for people who've never played soccer? Are you writing for people who play soccer every day? Because then if you're going to write for people who play soccer every day, you can employ all the strategies that writers use to cause readers to infer. If you're writing for people who have never played soccer, you need to be more explicit and not allude, not suggest, not imply, not use figurative language, because you can't make the assumption that the reader has knowledge that you have that will close that gap. And, you know, we didn't really start digging into that until we tried to analyze what we do as writers in order to set a reader up to do the other half of it. So it was really a fun sort of activity to dig into. So your book separates itself from, there are a lot of mentor textbooks out there, and a, I, all the ones I've read are amazing in different ways. I think the way that your book separates itself is that it focuses more on the nuts and bolts of how writing can be structured rather than just focusing on craft. Um, one of the things I love the way um, about the way your book is set up is you start out with this really um, catchy, attention-grabbing, I guess, is the way I would call it in my classroom, uh, metaphor or example or situation that underpins the thinking behind the lesson. And then you have, like, it's almost like there's a camera in the room as you guys teach the lesson, the reading lesson live. And then it's like a mini lesson, and then students try out a strategy or they try out a structure, and then you come back as a group. And then it flips into writing, and then you have samples, and then additional texts. So that's a really long way of me asking, what gave you the idea to structure the book this way? Well, the um, if you look at the uh, 
section that has comprehensive strategies. I wanted to make it very clear that we don't teach the human mind to infer, to make connections, to synthesize, to summarize. If you watch young children, like a two-year-old stands on the sofa with her arms on the back, peeking out the window, and says to her mother, look, it rained. And the mother says, no, baby, it didn't. And the, mother, and the baby says, it rained in the bushes. And the mother says, no, it didn't rain. And she scoops the baby up and steps out on the front porch. And the sidewalk is dry. The yard is dry. The car is dry. And the kid says, it rained in the bushes. And the mother walks the baby around to the front of the house. And the shrubbery is wet. And the baby says, see, Wayne, bushes. And then the mother goes, no, the sprinklers are on. And the kid goes, sprinkle bushes? You know, and you sit here and look, what the child understands from her own schema, her own background and the vocabulary she's acquiring, is that when it rains, outside things get wet. So she peeks to the window and the bushes are wet. She infers that it has rained. And then when her mother says, no, it hasn't, and gives her evidence to the opposite, the kid is in sort of this dissonance moment until she acquires something that she assimilates into her construct for how outside things get wet. And so it's a moment of learning. But the brain is inferring, you know, all the time. What we do in school that we think about as a comprehensive strategy is to make obvious what the reader is doing to pay attention to the signals the writer gives you. When a writer does this, you're supposed to fill in the background. And that's as much a writing insight as it is a reading insight. So I wanted to kind of move from the notion of what does this look like in the thinking of a child outside of school that has nothing to do with reading? And get out of the notion that, okay, I've got to teach these children to, to determine importance. I've got to teach these kids to make self-detect connections. It's, that is happening naturally in every human brain outside of school, long before school. So I wanted to make that clear, that this is a normal cognitive function. And that in school, what we do is to teach you how to notice it within the context of what you're reading. And then to take that and turn it into, now how could you put that into something to cause your reader to do what you just experienced? So I wanted that little sequence of think about it in the world. And then I wanted to show what that kind of thinking looks like in a classroom where a teacher is lifting up segments of text to scaffold in for kids to go, oh, you know how in the world you notice this happens? We do that in reading too. And so the kid would make a connection between what is known and what is new. And then to go from that and say, if we can do that as readers, it's only because the writer did some work for us. Let's think about what the writer did. So if I start making um, like a T-chart of the things that I see the writer doing, let's say, let's just go through this text um, and one that comes to mind um, that is replete with opportunities to infer is Jamaica's Fine by Winita Havel. Now that book is over 20 years old, but you know, I just love that text because it's a narrative text that gives us 
what she does and what she says and what others say. There's no place in the text that it tells us what she thinks or what she feels. It's only alluded to. So when she's embarrassed or feeling a little guilty, she feels hot around her ears. And so what we're looking at is how she's feeling. So we go back through the text and in each scene stop and say things like, what's she thinking right now? What's the mom thinking? What's the brother thinking? How is she feeling when she throws the little dog across from the bed to the chair? Um, How do you know? And then so we just make a list of what we notice. And then we go back and look at the text. What did Juanita Havel do to help us know that? And then what comes up in the right-hand column is a writing lesson. Because then you take that and go, if she did that to make us do this, what can we do in our work? So I would encourage the kids to go and pull a piece of writing that they had already completed. And it's important to me that it's not a draft they're in process with, but something they've already completed and they feel like I'm done. So pull something from your writing folder that's already been through the process. Take these three little postage stamp size post-it notes. Find one or two spots in this text where you just flat out told your reader something. You know, Jason is the best player on our team. Um, Allison is better than anyone at finding heart-shaped rocks. And then, so now then, make that chart go backwards. Put that over here on one side, and now on the other side, what can you do to show that and have me figure it out? Make me think. What could you do there to give me this place where I will say she is the best Um, so that I will make the generalization from inferring from the evidence you've laid down in the text? Does that make sense? No, yeah, it totally makes sense. And I'm like, as you outline this structure, this every chapter in Writers or Readers is structured kind of in that way. I mean, every lesson is fresh and new. It comes at writing and reading from a different angle, but it's all done the same way, just illuminating what the writer did to make you think a certain way, and then the kids, the students, trying it out. And to me, what's brilliant about that is it's not just teaching lessons to kids. It's helping when you do it in a repeated way like that, but in a way that continues to be interesting, Mm -hmm. it's obvious that students will be developing habits of readers and writers from these lessons because it's a predictable structure that they can take independently really easily because they've experienced it so many times in so many ways this way of thinking will be part of their will be or i guess will be part of their schema in a way yeah i agree i agree what we're after here um i've said for a long time that i believe a lot of instruction in the united states hinges on the notion of teaching someone how to do something. But when we teach you how to do something without teaching you why it's done, we leave you crippled with knowing when to do it. So unless you understand the why, you really don't know the context in which that particular thing works, which I see as one of the problems with... um, the way that some people use mentor text, mm-hmm. you know, because we have some really strong professional material to help us use mentor text, and they all recommend that you dig into the why. But in classroom practice, I see that part of the process 
being getting the least amount of attention. People are more concerned with how to write a good lead rather than understanding what a lead is supposed to do or how to write a smooth transition without understanding the function of a transition. Or somebody says something like, well, let's use a concrete noun. Well, why does that help the reader instead of saying we put our stuff in the trunk? You know, like how does it help the reader to know that we put in flippers, goggles, a beach towel, and sunblock. Well, I already know from the start of that where we're headed. And so those four little specific items going in the trunk changes everything. Well, if a kid doesn't understand what the specificity is about, then they will over-describe everything and add detail everywhere because they don't understand why they're adding detail in this one spot and I believe that the generalization they make is that teachers like detail. So I will describe everything. And if you pick up a typical fourth grade paper, it's replete with details. So I'm, I'm wanting us here as we move through, you know, this little sequence of look at the concept, look at it in reading, look at it in writing. I'm wanting us here to unpack both as teachers and as students why something is done in the structure of writing and how it is intended to help the reader come closer to the writer's intentions. <laughs> um, well, the Best Friend Collection um, had been developing for a number of years and then I just came upon this idea once I don't know quite how but the the idea that you know there are relationships between humans that are acquaintances professional friends personal friends but we all have one or two very close best friends and those people know things about us. They know us intimately. And they may know things about us that our significant others don't know. They may be the place where you test the waters and share a secret or talk to someone and go, okay, I have to figure out how to you know, bring this up at home. Help me think this through. There is that person you trust so much, you turn to them, and they know you so well, they can say to you, you know what, you're fixating on something again. You just need to let this go. That someone else couldn't help you do. And I'm betting that most of us have one of those people that maybe we call them a best friend, maybe we call them a confidant, maybe we call them a brother from another mother. You know, maybe we have all kinds of ways of referring to them. What I sort of questioned once in, in some small group, and it's how that sort of just like little epiphany happened when you're sitting around with some people going like, okay, guys, what would happen if kids had knew five books the way we know our best friends? You know, like they could talk about those books. They could, if you said something like, okay, you know the part in Jamaica's Fine when the mother says, where'd you get that dog? every single kid could see that picture in their head because we had spent so much time with that book. 
So the project that followed Writers or Readers, which is published by Heinemann, was a project called the Best Friends Collection, which is published by Scholastic. And Scholastic did that piece because I wanted to include the trade books with the set of materials so that everything is all in one place. And so inside that little set, there are these little laminated cards that kind of give you an overview of the story, a quick summary of the plot, a list of the characters, and then sort of their role. So, and I know that seems that sounds lame, but if I am telling you that I'm telling you Sheila Ray the Brave, Sheila Ray's the main character, but her little sister, who is a very significant character. So if I say to you, so then her little sister here is the catalyst for all of the tension in that text. That's an important thing to know rather than just saying her little sister. So I'm wanting you to understand that she's the point of contrast. When we say Sheila Ray is brave, then her sister is over here cowering because one of them is not afraid of thunder and lightning and the other one is hiding behind the chair. One of them is not afraid of the dark and the other one has a flashlight on peeking around in the, in the room looking for monsters. And without that little sister, we don't see what brave means for Sheila Ray if you're like a five-year-old or a six-year-old. We're defining bravery by contrasting these two characters. So when I'm doing this thing of who is the cast of characters, I'm also trying to illuminate the role they play within the structure of the plot. And then there's a little thing on perspective and point of view. And if you notice in the literary elements chapter of Writers or Readers, we pull that up. And that's because I think a lot of people use the word perspective and point of view as synonyms. And in some circles, that's acceptable. In my brain, for my personal view, they are two very different things and should be separated. Um, I'm, a, I'm troubled. I'm taking an aside here, but I am troubled by by some state exams, and I won't name which states, but I could. There are some state exams that will present a child in the fourth, fifth, sixth grade with a passage and ask them to read it and then to write an essay about how the story would be different if the point of view were shifted. What they mean is perspective. Because if the story is told from the bird's perspective, they're asking you what would happen if the fox told the story. But when they say the point of view, if the kid simply said, well, it's told in third person, if you shifted it to first person, it would be this. They would fail that test because they did point of view is first person, second person, third person. Perspective is through whose eyes are we seeing, whose heart are we feeling, whose head are we thinking. And... There are people who argue with me that, you know, we're in a place where those things are interchangeable and it's okay to use those words separately, but I don't agree. And so I put them in there for that reason. And in the Best Friends collections, I am identifying the perspective of the story and the point of view of the story for that very reason. There's a little profile of the author because I want children to understand that authors are real people. And this one looks like your uncle and that one looks like your great aunt. And oh my gosh, this looks like the lady who lives next door to me. And then there's a little profile about them and a link where you can go to their website and find out more about them. And then as the card opens up, it's sort of like a menu. 
I will kind of guide you through some things to think about. Because what I'm doing in the Best Friend books, in order for you to become so intimately acquainted with the text, I want you to have exposure to it over the entire year. I don't want us to do what we have done with some mentor texts where we pull them out during the unit on leads and we only look at the lead of the book and then we put the book away. I want us to become intimately familiar with five books. So I selected five picture books for each grade level, kindergarten through fifth, and then wrote these little guides for them. In the first reading, I'm asking people to do what I call the movie read. Read the book from start to finish. Do not stop. Do not interrupt and use your best movie voice. Be the narrator. Be the characters. If the character is scared, sound frightened. And if the character is excited, be over the moon. But be the character and play the movie. I'm asking you not to turn and talk during that first read. I want kids to experience the entire text start to finish without any interruption, allowing their brain to go wherever it wishes to go as it constructs meaning in the story, the way the brain will do when they're doing independent reading. Then I want you to come back to that text multiple times, let's say six or seven across the year. If you're doing that with five books, then you know, you're looking at quite a number of visits to those texts. But we're talking about a character, and I'm going like, oh, well, you guys remember Peter. Let's go back and look at Peter's chair. Today, while we read it, I want you to just think with me about Peter. Let's do it this way. Peter is the kind of boy who, and I know because in the book I saw him. So what I'm going to do now is make another little T-chart, and I'm going to list things. Peter is the kind of boy who works hard. On the other side, I know because I see him stretch up as high as he can and put the last block on. Peter's the kind of boy who can get upset. I know because I see him get mad when his sister has his old things and they're being painted pink. Peter's the kind of boy who makes a plan. I know because I see him in the books. Fill his bag with cookies, dog biscuits, his toy crocodile, his old blue chair, and a picture of him when he was a baby. Peter's the kind of boy who can change his mind. I know because in the text I see him. Now I have this list of the character trait on the left the evidence on the right, I can come back to that book and just look at those character traits and go through how many different ways can a writer help us learn about a character. Dialogue, what the character says or what other characters say about the char uh, that character. What the character does, his actions or her actions. Reactions to situations. Interior monologue that allows me to see the thinking or the feelings of that character in relation to those reactions. So there's maybe six or seven avenues through which a writer can take us into meeting a character. And if we come to explore those even in kindergarten, then we start noticing, oh, he's this kind of guy. We know because. And I want them to see that in a well-rounded book, that character can be more than one thing so that they are very human in the sense that they match off like us. He was mad this morning and then this happened and he got happy again, so everything is good. So if you don't have that exposure to those texts over time, then I don't think you'll pick those nuances up. So I'll come back to those same texts again in a couple of weeks and then we'll look at some other subtle detail. Let's look at the things he took with him on the, when he decided to run away. Why did he take these things? Why is that baby picture such an important detail in the story? 
Ezra Keats could have left that out and we might not have noticed. Why did he put it in? You know, it serves some real function. We come back to that story another time and we look at, you know, did he get mad all at once or little by little? And we pay attention to the use of taglines. When he saw each thing being painted pink, his emotions escalated. And we see that paralleled by the taglines in the speech. He thought, he whispered, he muttered, he shouted. Well, those taglines escalate volume that parallel an escalation of emotion that show the tension rising in that plot. I'm going to be willing to bet that most of the people who have ever read Peter's Chair out loud to kids have never stopped and looked at all those little pieces and pulled them back because that's not what you're fixating on if you're reading the story once. So if I'm reading the story the third time and I'm looking at, did he get upset all at once or little by little? Let's look for evidence in the text. Each scene or each two or three scenes, I stop, ask you to turn and talk with that one focus in mind so that we're looking for the evidence of what you're doing and the talk and the thinking have a focus that we're all sharing. So I'm just trying to build us towards something. And then any of those insights we gain as readers through those conversations and through those visits with the text, we can use our insights from writers or readers and flip all of them with those five books into writing opportunities. And I literally could teach out of those five books all year long. Listening back to that interview, I couldn't help but notice all of the really smart, smart things that Lester Laminac was saying and how they were connected to this one central idea of, you know, as teachers, sometimes we leave something too soon. In other words, like, sometimes we read a really great book, and then we move on to something else, instead of thinking of other ways that we could use that book as a mentor text, or maybe other ways that we can use that book to illustrate things that we can notice as readers. The best friend book idea, the writers are readers and readers are writers. It's all about sticking with something that's good and getting all of the learning that we can out of that thing. If you hadn't heard any of Lester Laminac's work or read any of his work until this episode, be sure to check out the show notes. I have Lots of different places where you can follow him and his work. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for ways that you can be uh, more involved with the Ohio Writing Project and the Ohio Council of Teachers of English Language Arts. I want to give one more big thank you to Octella for this partnership through which we can release these podcasts this summer. And, oh, I should thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Write Answers. (laughs) 